Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you here today. I am James. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in our fifth week in our series on Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And I think one of the gifts for us of going through an entire book of the Bible is that we can't dodge the challenging passages. <clears throat> and I have to say that our passage today is a hard one. Uh, so hope you wear your seatbelt there. Um, we're going to begin by reading from the message here. And I know that God has something for us to remind us of our need for the gospel and, and provision that we have in Christ. So we're going to read from the message the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, I also received a report of scandalous sex within your church family, a kind that wouldn't be tolerated even outside the church. One of your men is sleeping with a stepmother, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? Skipping down to verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my earlier letter that you shouldn't make yourselves at home among the sexually promiscuous. I didn't mean that you should have nothing at all to do with outsiders of that sort, or with criminals, whether blue or white collar, or with spiritual phonies for that matter, you'd have to leave the world entirely to do that. But I am saying that you shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous or crooked, is flip with God or rude to friends, gets drunk, becomes greedy and predatory. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line. If necessary, clean house. Whew. That felt a little bit intense, right? I feel like we've kind of wandered into a family intervention Right? Where the father is like calling out the misbehavior of his child and trying to get him back on the right path. Uh, and as a father, I may be a little bit familiar with these kind of uh, interventions, right? I was thinking back to, to just when COVID was beginning and mom and dad were trying to figure out how to work from home remotely with our, uh, another child doing elementary work over Zoom. And then our youngest, whose name I won't mention, right, uh, was unsupervised, had no one to pay attention to him, and it became chaotic. <laughs> My wife called a family meeting, and we learned that even as grace-oriented people, our kids needed some confrontation once in a while, right? Uh, together, we made some rules, like don't cover your body in marker. Don't punch your mom in the face, right? Be nice to the dogs. I wish I could say after this that all was well, uh, but honestly, it doesn't take a pandemic to show us that we never outgrow our need for Jesus, right? The truth is, no one likes to be confronted with their misbehavior, do they? It makes us feel judged. And we all know that judging is wrong, isn't it? 
But if we stop and think about it, we have sort of a twisted relationship with the idea of judging. Like most of us have strong feelings that we should not judge others, and yet we freely judge others without even thinking about it. You're probably judging this sermon right now, aren't you? (laughs) And yet at the same time, when our best friend at church is making destructive choices in their life that are destroying their relationships, we won't say a word to help them. And heaven forbid you point out what's wrong with me, even if it's true, right? We become naturally defensive, don't we? But our passage today confronts these notions and turns the idea of what it means to judge upside down. While our behavior, at least for most of you, is not as notorious as the people in the church of Corinth, right? Uh, But I think there's some lessons here to learn on how the gospel teaches us to have healthy community, deal with our problems, and grow in our ability to love one another. I think a good starting point for us is to talk about this word judge. It's one of those words that has multiple meanings. I counted eight in the dictionary, but we tend to think of only one, right? We tend to think of the word judge as condemn. But it also means things like to discern right from wrong or to make things right. So if this passage is calling us to judge, what kind of judging should we be doing? And what kind of judging is God's job? Well, When we ponder which meaning of judge to use, consider that the goal is always to love people well, right? Our goal is always to love people well. So in light of that, we can probably see that the two types of judging are really helpful here. That we're going to need someone to help us discern right from wrong and to help us make things right when we go off track. Paul gives us a case study today on healthy and unhealthy judging. Well, let's begin with talking about the kind of judging you already know you shouldn't be doing. And that's judging people outside the the church, right? Paul says, don't do that. And I think in this context, we can think of judging as condemning, right? Giving up hope on people or canceling them from our life. There is never a time where judging or judging in the condemning sense is our job whether it's inside the church or outside the church, we should never condemn another person, right? It's impossible to love someone and condemn them at the same time. In fact, it is generally not helpful for us to call out sin in an unbeliever. We don't reach people's heart by being their judge. The way we reach people's heart is by talking to them about our brokenness and sin and how Jesus meets us in that place, right? Well, this isn't Paul's main point in this passage. We're going to put that aside and move on to the main topic. So let's recall that the city of Corinth was a notoriously immoral city. It was sort of like the combination of New York City and Las Vegas. And on one level, then, it's not surprising that the church in Corinth was dealing with really big problems. But the inappropriate behavior in the church of Corinth was exceeding what the unbelievers were doing. So not only is Paul upset that the people in the church are out-sinning the unbelievers, but the church almost seems proud of it. 
The church is flaunting their new freedom in Christ by celebrating this man's act of defying God's command. Some people believe that God's grace means I can do whatever I want. But let me tell you a secret. Are you ready? Sin is bad for you. Sin is bad for you. When's the last time someone told you that? Sin is bad for you. Your sin is bad for your family. Your sin is bad for the church family. I think we're pretty adept at seeing the wrongdoing of other people. We see in others how their sin is really irrational, right? How many times have I muttered under my breath to my children, what were you thinking, right? But honestly, we struggle to see our own sin and the impact it's having on us and our loved ones. Sometimes we really do need the help of someone who loves us to come alongside and to point it out for us. We tend to underestimate the impact of sin on our life, how it hardens our heart and inhibits our ability to love other people, how it destroys relationships, how it clouds our thinking and deceives us, and how it turns us away from resting in our true identity in Christ. Our sin may not be as notorious as the church in Corinth, but, but our gossip tears down another person. Our lying breaks trust in a relationship. And when I can't put down my phone, it makes it really hard to love the people around me. Our behaviors, thoughts, and attitudes impact more than just ourselves, right? When we leave sin unchecked, it grows deeper and deeper into our hearts. It becomes normalized. Have you ever had that experience when you've done something wrong and your conscience pricks your heart? Anyone? Four of you have a conscience. <laughs> I'm very concerned. Let's switch to the other sermon, right? Like, uh, in eighth grade, I had a uh, Bible teacher named Gladys Freiling. And Gladys Freiling said that, that our, our conscience is like a triangle in our heart. And whenever we do something wrong, that triangle spins. So that the point of the triangle pricks your heart to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. So you would think we would stop doing that thing, but we are so drawn to that sin that we go back and do it again. And that triangle keeps turning, trying to get our attention. But every time that triangle spins, the little points get a little bit more rounded so that we feel it less and less until eventually you just have a circle spinning in your heart. You don't feel a thing. In fact, we're so drawn to that sin that we, we become enslaved to it. It becomes a normal part of our everyday life. And I think this can happen on a community level as well. Like in my neighborhood for many years now, there's only like four houses that are trying to manage their weeds. <laughs> and the rest of the homes have let the weeds have free reign, right? Crabgrass and Creeping Charlie and Clover have crowded out the, the grass. So something that was obviously noxious at one point becomes preferred to something that is good and beautiful. And I think this is a picture of what sin can do in a community. Have you noticed that if you hang out with people who are negative and complaining, how quickly 
that behavior spreads, especially in the winter in Minnesota, right? This is why Paul wants us to confront sin because he knows its destructive force will spread throughout the church family. What is our posture towards sin? Do we really believe that it is bad for us? I had a friend tell me about how he saved his brother's life in London. His brother was stepping out to cross the street, but he was looking this way, and a double-decker bus was coming this way. And he had to grab his brother by the neck and pull him back to save his life. I think if we really believed that sin was as destructive as stepping in front of a bus, we would beg people to speak into our life, wouldn't we? Well, maybe at this point in the sermon, you're wondering, why are we even talking about this? Didn't, didn't Jesus die on the cross for my sins? Well, yes. Yes. Yes, he did, right? All your sins, past, present, and future. You had your judgment day when Jesus died on the cross for you. God sent his son, Jesus, to make things right by having Jesus pay the price for our sins. And then Jesus credited to us his righteousness so that our legal standing before God is holy and blameless. We are secure because we are in Christ. But this side of heaven, we're not shielded from all the consequences of sin, are we? So when you leave church today and you decide to drive 150 miles per hour and you get pulled over by the police, it's not going to help you that much to say, don't worry, officer, the blood of Christ covers all my sins, <laughs> right? When I choose to put my selfish desires ahead of the needs of my children, it has lifelong implications for them. And when you punch me in the face, I still bleed, right? Our actions impact and hurt other people. So if we're going to grow as people who love one another well, we need to face our sin. God's grace doesn't leave us free to cohabit comfortably with our sin. God's grace doesn't leave us free to cohabit comfortably with our sin. In fact, the gospel always moves us to confront our sin. The gospel wants what is best for us, and sin is the opposite of what is best for us. So if we're going to grow into mature believers, we need to deal with the sin in our life and our church family. And I think the gospel should give us the courage to do that because our sin is not our identity. Our identity is that we are Christ's beloved children. And because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can be honest about our brokenness, right? Well, maybe you're a little bit worried. Now, if we're going to start dealing with our sin, does that mean a pastor is going to show up in my house? to call out my sin, or, uh, or even better, like Petey's going to call Corey up and say, okay, Corey, talk to us about all your sins that begin with the letter D. We don't have time for that, do we, Corey? No, we don't, right? That's probably not very helpful, is it, right? The best way for this to happen is that the people in your immediate circle of friends would come and speak into your life because those are the people who know you and love you, and have earned the right to speak into your life. We don't need to point out the sin of our casual acquaintances, right? This is reserved for those whom you love 
and who love you in return. For example, in college, I may have gone out with, on a date with a girl who wasn't the best choice for me, not really a healthy relationship. And my mentor quickly stepped in and said, I don't think she's God's best for you. And honestly, at the time, he was probably the only person I would have listened to because he had earned the right to speak into my life. If our brother or sister in Christ has fallen deep into sin, it would be unloving for the Christian community to do nothing about it. Love moves towards people. Love moves towards people, even if that means gentle confrontation. Love doesn't leave people alone in their suffering or selfishness or enslavement to sin. The Bible says that ongoing sin blinds us and makes us callous. And I think sometimes people are so paralyzed that unless we intrude, they will stay lost in their sin. And Jesus models this, right? He's always on a mission to seek and save the lost. He is always pursuing his beloved lost sheep. And the primary instrument that he uses to do that are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So the goal is always to wake people up from their sin. The goal is never shame or punishment or exclusion. The goal is always healing and restoration. And so we approach people then with grace and humility and gentleness. I know for myself that in my natural state, apart from the body of Christ, my tendency is to drift away from Jesus toward selfishness. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as the hymn says, right? And I think maybe for a lot of us, our problem isn't some obvious sin, but maybe more socially acceptable ones, like our desire to be in control of our life or our addiction to things that make our life comfortable. And just like the more obvious things, like Paul is confronting the church in Corinth, these things keep us from loving others well. We are stuck, and we don't want to be unstuck, right? We need someone to help us, even if we don't really want it. So the best path forward for us, if we're going to grow in love and maturity, is to invite judgment into our life. Invite judgment into our life. Obviously, I'm not talking about condemnation, right? I'm talking about someone who's going to help us discern right from wrong and to help us make things right when we've gone astray. And I put an asterisk up there intentionally, right? Because you don't want just anyone to speak into your life. We need to cultivate a relationship with one or two people with whom we give permission to talk to us on a deep level. Someone that we can be vulnerable with about what's really going on in here. We all need spiritual companions on the journey. For over 10 years, I've been meeting with two guys, Abe and Andy, and God has used these guys to keep me from wandering too far away. They continually point me to Jesus as my hope and encourage me when I'm losing heart. And this is really a good picture of spiritual companionship. I've heard it say that accountability is 80% being reminded of the good news of the gospel because 80% of the time, you need a friend who's going to tell you that, that in Christ, you are loved and accepted and secure and forgiven. 
And then 19% of the time, you need a friend who asks good questions. Someone who is curious about how you are really doing. And then 1% of the time, a friend who's going to redirect you when you've gone astray, right? And when your spiritual companions spend most of the time encouraging you and pointing you to Jesus, it is much easier to hear, believe, and respond to their correction, don't you think? The church is a home for strugglers, of whom I am the biggest. I think we're all struggling in some way, right? We need each other. We can't do this on our own. So let me encourage you to find a spiritual companion with whom you can start this kind of relationship. And I know it takes some effort to do this in a big church like ours. So maybe a starting place is to join a Sunday community or a small group. And then within that place, maybe you connect with someone who's a fellow struggler like you. And you can start by meeting once a month to have coffee. Or another place is a class I teach on Tuesday nights in the fall called Deeper with Jesus. And over 10 weeks, we learn how to apply the gospel to our lives and we break up into small groups and to talk about it. But whatever you do, I just encourage you to take your next step in developing deeper relationships here at CPC. I'm not sure how this message landed with you today. I know that as I was preparing, I was convicted over and over again of of my sin. If you remember anything from today, remember that Jesus loves you, that he's pursuing you with this love, that he'll never give up on you. And he wants you to experience the fullness of walking with him. And as we walk with him, we need someone to speak into our life to remind us that our best life is found in Jesus. Who will you invite to speak into your life? Let us pray together. Jesus, we just come and confess how much we need you. We confess that we struggle, that we struggle with sin, that we are drawn to your irrational choices at times. And we really need help. We pray for your spirit to convict us of our sin, to sharpen the triangles within us, to bring us spiritual companions who will come alongside and point us to you. We thank you, Jesus, for the life that we have in you. And we pray that we would learn to live even more fully in your love. In thy name we pray, amen.